1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. My name is Sharonik Bhushu. I'm a doctoral candidate in the English department at New York University, and I co-host a podcast called High Theory, which is available at hightheory.net, where we take apart difficult ideas from the academy in very short episodes. Today, we are talking about a brilliant new book titled Making Women Pay, Microfinance in Urban India, by Smita Radhakrishnan, forthcoming from Duke University Press. Smita Radhakrishnan is Professor of Sociology and Luella Lamer Professor of Women's Studies at Wellesley College. Her research examines the cultural, financial, and political dimensions of gender and globalization, with particular focus on India, the United States, and South Africa. Her most recent book, Making Women Pay Microfinance in Urban India, examines exploitative anti-poverty practices that target women. Radhakrishnan's previous book, Appropriately Indian, Gender and Culture in a Transnational Class, also from Duke University Press in 2011, is a transnational ethnography of Indian IT professionals. She has previously researched the cultural politics of post apartheid South Africa. Her articles have appeared in World Development, Gender and Society, Theory and Society, and Science, among other prominent journals. She received her PhD in Sociology from University of California, Berkeley. Smitha, welcome to the show and thank you so much for talking to us about your book.
2: Thanks so much, Arunek. It's wonderful to be here.
1: Okay. My first question, could you, just to uh, get us started, could you give us a sense of the inception of this book and particularly this book as a culmination of your intellectual journey?
2: Sure. Uh, So this book has really been a very long time in the making. I think even as an undergraduate, I was drawn to uh, issues of development and gender. And that's kind of what got me started uh, being interested in academia and an academic path altogether. So I've been aware of microfinance. I've been aware of different kinds of policies, policies oriented towards, you know, women's and quote unquote, women's empowerment for a long time. Um, but then my first book, I ended up taking a different direction with that and looking at kind of the upper end of the of the economy with uh, IT workers. And so in some way, this book brought me back to the thing that got me interested in academia in the first place. And, and the way that that happened was really through my students. So I, I used to teach a gender and development class at Wellesley College. And, uh, you know, I it was a very critical kind of look at different kinds of policies targeting women and thinking about gender and development theories and praxis, uh, you know, in general. But I always found that when we got to the microfinance part, it was very difficult to be critical. It seemed to be a panacea. Students found it very um Convincing, Uh, everybody found it convincing. There was nothing that I could say, and there wasn't that much critical research out there that made people think twice. It was just such a neat story, right? We give women a small loan; uh, they go out and start a business. They are more independent. It brings economic self sufficiency, and then uh, great. We should just do this everywhere, right? Um, And there wasn't. I, I couldn't, other than you know, economists like Nyla Kabir who were painting a little bit more difficult picture at that time. Kind of in, I would say, around. 2008, 2010, there really weren't very many qualitative critical studies of, of microfinance. So I started getting interested in this topic and I, I knew that there was a burgeoning, booming, commercial microfinance industry in India that really no one had written about at the time when I started thinking about this project. And so I started thinking about, okay, how can I kind of um, you know, go back to the things that I'm most interested in regarding sort of gender and political economy to take this on. And I started, uh, really honing in on training sessions, um, training as a way that microfinance companies would offer, uh, knowledge to their borrowers. And so my interest in microfinance training was really what got me going on this entire thing. But what happened as is often the case is that once I started, looking into this, um, it like there was just this huge explosion of critical work on microfinance around 2010, 2011, 2012. Um, Lamia Karim's book and Anya Roy's book, uh, you know, just so many things. Uh, and so I started feeling like, all right, what can I really contribute to this space? But then it ended up just being a much a long journey after that, which um, I, you know, it took me a long time to kind of um, collect all the data that I wanted to collect, uh, have time to analyze it, historicize it, and then, you know, put it together to make a contribution to the space.
1: Right. So you begin um, in your introduction. You talk about you begin with a scene of loan disbursement and its affective implications, and I, I really like this. So you witness. Uh, I quote, a palpable joy among the recipients. And then you say that the optics of this belie how microfinance really works for m- women in India. And so I was wondering, you know, could you uh, speak a little bit about this this particular entry into into the book?
2: Sure. It took me a long time to figure out what that entry point would be because it's such a complex story that I'm trying to tell. And so figuring out... Where do I begin? Was not necessarily intuitive, but I realized that many of us, if you if you Google microfinance and look for images, it's this it's this interaction at the moment of loan disbursement that often is the image that comes to mind, right? So it's usually um, you know a loan officer, usually a man, um, handing out loans to women who are just so grateful to get this money. Um, You know, and I didn't get the chance to witness that many loan disbursements. There were relatively few that I was, because it happened at a very particular time. You know, you have to be in the branch uh, in order to do it because they have branch offices. They don't really happen in neighborhoods. So it was quite by coincidence that I happened to be interviewing someone, not even at one of the main firms that I did the research at, where there was a loan disbursement underway. Um, And I remember, uh, and I'd already been pretty deep into the project by the time I saw this, but I remember looking at this and being like, wow, this is amazing. Everyone is so happy. You know, like the loan, like the loan officers were happy. They were laughing. You know, the women were laughing. Um, There was just this feeling of like, well, this is awesome. You know, Um, anyone who would drop in on that scene would be, would not, it's just so easy to get taken into this just being an amazing event that's going to be the start of so many good things for everyone that's involved. And as I talk about in the introduction of the book, even for the loan officers, it's a moment of triumph because they have gotten all of these women to you know, fulfill the qualifications for the loan and then actually come and receive their money, which is a moment of triumph in terms of their own work in recruiting these women, going through all of the many steps, which I'll talk about later, um, to get them to qualify for the loan and then actually show up at this disbursement. So everyone is really doing the job that they're supposed to do in this moment. And so it, it feels really good when you're there. I mean, and there are many situations um, in, during the field work where uh, even in, in some training sessions where, you know, you can easily be like, wow, this is this is like a happy thing. Um, And so I wanted to start there because I thought that it was a place that most people, if you've had an idea about small loans or someone tells you about small loans for women, that would be a place where you might begin and say, well, this is great, you know, Um, and then I sort of contrast that with what is just beneath the surface, right? The, the interest rates that are involved, the um, the various fees that are involved, that people with PhDs in economics cannot calculate the real interest rates of these things, um, the amount of follow-up, That what happens if the women don't repay, you know, what else is going on in the women's lives, the, these borrowers' lives, uh, how they were targeted in the first place. There's a whole range of things that are just outside the frame of that scene, which Gives you the larger context of what's actually going on here, right? So there's a way in which it's misleading, but it's also, it's also that you have to start there. It's the, it's the beginning. It's that tip of ice, tip of the iceberg that invites
1: yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, in. exactly. Um, so you know, going into these deeper structural factors, your first chapter talks about the role of the state in the environment within which the microfinance institution MFI, which is an abbreviation you use in the book, uh, it operates and how it has changed the relationship between Indian women and banking uh, over the course of time from one of exclusion to one of extraction. So could you give us a brief history of this relationship between women and banking?
2: Yeah, so so the, the way that you put it in your question, Sharnik, about... Uh, how Indian women have uh, related to banking from one of exclusion to one of extraction. I had to kind of come up with that framing. It wasn't necessarily there. So one of the big challenges of writing this chapter is trying to figure out, right, what what is, how does microfinance fit in to a bigger picture, what is that bigger picture? You know, Is it just the history of microfinance? Do we just start in the 80s with self-help groups and just talk about the rise of commercial microfinance? That didn't feel right to me. Um, and also lots of other people have done that and I, I didn't feel like I had much to contribute in that. But when I really um, you know, probed it further, what comes along with this type of, of finance is this narrative about financial inclusion right? And I've always been a little bit skeptical of that framing, right? Because haven't women always been embedded in financial systems in one way or the other, right? So what exactly, what is the inclusion part of it, right? So if we put aside the rhetoric or the narrative about financial inclusion, like what's the deeper thing um, that's going on here, right? And so, so I had to really reflect upon that and do some digging about what was the context in which The self-help groups, which are different from the commercial microfinance institutions that I'm looking at in the book, Uh, the self-help group is are the government programs um, that are linked to state banks um, that offer women loans. Whereas I'm talking about commercial organizations, for profit organizations that are uh, separate from that. But I actually think that they are. Uh, quite interconnected, um, and and in order to understand those interconnections, you have to look at a broader, longer trajectory of the of how the Indian government has tried to provide banking services to the most marginalized. And so, women are one group within that, especially marginalized women with marginalized uh, identities, caste identities, or uh, rural identities. Um, but you have to look more broadly at. You know the vast majority of the Indian population that has been excluded historically from banking services. And what I found is that it date back dates back to the colonial era, right that from that the the British were co- very worried about uh you know Indian farmers not having access to uh, you know to 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 loans that were not usurious you know they were trying to break down um, the dominance of landlords in, in giving out these kinds of loans right and so in all of these histories you know women are really erased in this and where they pop up it's when they're widowed or single and and the state kind of trying to provide some sort of livelihood to women who are sort of left adrift uh, without you know the support of uh, men relatives. Um, and, and, you know, and then what you find in the, in the literature is that really in the the post-colonial state, you know, changed some things around from the British times, but, you know, really made very aggressive. This was at the top front of mind for, um, the post-colonial state to try to get fair debt to out in rural areas. And, and there's a huge history there that I think we don't look at often enough when we're trying to think about economic development. And, and the, you know what the post-colonial state did very well was building out an enormous banking infrastructure uh, in rural areas, many of which did reach women. Uh, however, that infrastructure was not very well managed. And when more neoliberal um, policy uh, regimes came into play, those institutions did not really make sense. Now, I'm not saying they were all fantastic, but we have to acknowledge that there were some important successes um, that the postcolonial state made in expanding the banking sector. So, so what what you see in the in the more you know. Um, recent context uh, is that you see a a shift where previously there was an effort to get at women through these uh, rural banking infrastructures, this enormous network of rural banks. Um, And then when there's a shift uh, where a lot of those banks are closed down and there's a focus on efficiency, women fall out of the picture and then come back as a new kind of ideal subject. Right. So so previously, the rural men, Right. In that earlier period of rapid expansion of banking in rural India, rural men come to be seen as unreliable. They come to be seen as, uh, you know, um, not good subjects of debt because they drink, because they whatever. They, There's all these narratives that were going around, um, which I, I have some discussion in the book of why why that happened although i think there's a lot more to be investigated there why is it that in india rural and marginalized men come to be seen as unfavorable bearers of debt i think that's something that we can look into more but what happens by the time you get to the 80s or so is that you have global discourses from the world bank to uh you know local indian governments talking about women as the new development hero right women as being Responsible women as being, you know, the ones who are going to really care for their families because men can't be relied upon to do it. Right. And this is this is ends up becoming a very powerful narrative that really um, hides the fact that women are more reliable because they're more vulnerable, because there are so many structures that can prompt them to pay Uh, that, that are not necessarily the same for men and that this construction of women as development heroes actually doubles down on that vulnerability in, in a way. So, so it it took me a lot of time to sort of figure out what that actually looked like. And so when microfinance institutions come into the picture, it's no longer just about including women. It's actually about maximizing the profit that can be gained from having them as part of the system. Right, and and so I look at uh, some uh, one very specific uh, policy change that uh, that I focus on in the book, which was really like an aha moment for me that came very late in the in the book, is a policy change where the Reserve Bank of India or the RBI decides that uh, that that regular mainstream banks can f- fulfill. Their priority lending obligation, their obligation to lend to excluded groups, that they can fulfill that obligation by lending to MFIs. So that happens in about 2005, and that really opens the floodgates for funding to microfinance institutions that are just targeting women, right? And and that's when you start seeing um, a huge amount, uh, a huge influx of uh, of funding. That's where you start seeing uh, basically. MFIs having more money than they can lend out, right? They're going aggressively. It has sort of those parallels to the subprime mortgage crisis here, right? You see lots of organizations going out into rural areas and and giving away loans to women with very little um, uh, verification, not necessarily looking at whether they have the ability to pay. So that's where the extraction part of it starts to come in, right? They're able to offer women loans at very high interest rates because the government had made it possible for them to receive these funds. Um, so anyway, that's a that's a brief uh, overview of it. There's a few other elements which has to do with um, the global lending infrastructure as well and um, re- banking regulations within India about how different funding streams work um, and why it is that women become targeted within that. But I'll, I'll let uh, listeners read the book for some of those yeah. like, details. Yeah.
1: But, you know, we have uh, we have arrived at. Um, kind of the last stage of evolution of the MFI and what the MFI has become, and I'm in next in the next chapter you take up the actors who participate in and the cultures that have grown out of this institution. Um, and you know, my specific question about that is how does gendered power work there in the in the determination of these actors and these cultures.
2: Yeah, so, so that chapter is really about what's going on within microfinance institutions and within the microfinance industry. So one of the main motivations of this whole book was to bring gender back into discussions of microfinance. Now one might think that it's somehow like, well, how could it have disappeared um, when it ran in India? It lends to 99 percent, ninety. women, Um, but indeed it has. There's been some discussion about women being exploited, um, but this idea that gender is a system of power that not only operates interpersonally, but also structurally, shaping institutions, um, narratives about skill and competence, and ultimately the distribution of resources that's in society, that perspective has actually dropped out of the discussion uh, of microfinance in general. So so I really try to bring that back by looking at MFIs through a kind of gender and institutions lens, gender and organizations kind of lens. Um, and so, so I look at Women who are employed within the micro, within microfinance institutions at different levels, from the level of loan officers all the way up to those uh, more upper class, well to do women who are in the IT support roles, as well as in IT, as well as in MFI leadership. Um, and then I look at uh, you know what their men counterparts are doing uh, alongside of that. Um, and so so and what I find is that. Uh, Although these are organizations that are ostensibly oriented towards women because all the borrowers are women, uh, they it is not very friendly towards women. Um, women who work in MFIs uh, face very difficult working conditions, uh, often blatant discrimination uh, for being mothers, and uh, don't really have many opportunities to move up within the organization. Um, and yet, those who are employed within the organization are incredibly effective in interacting with clients, right? Clients see in women workers, a kind of aspirational version of what they can be. Um, Clients look at, you know, the women who come into their communities as loan officers. They see them as being independent. They see them as caring for their community. Uh, They see them as something that they might want to be someday, even though uh, most of these women are, you know, very under, Paid and often um, don't have very many opportunities uh, for upward mobility uh, and and often have to fight incredibly hard within their families to be able to work those kinds of jobs because those kinds of jobs involve roaming all over the city they involve going into uh, neighborhoods and uh, you know interacting in people's homes uh, they're extremely physically exhausting um, and so so you and yet you do see that you know, that it's only about 10, 12% of field staff who are women, um, but those women are quite extraordinary um, and they perform and there wasn't any way to statistically check this out, but at least anecdotally from the people that I met. It seemed to me that the women were very, very high performers in terms, even in terms of the metrics of the organizations themselves. And yet the men who also start in these roles, they have a lot of ability to move up within the organizations. They're granted strategic roles um, and they are really able to uh, experience upward mobility in a way that I found that the women actually face a lot more restriction. And this is highly ironic considering that these are organizations that are ostensibly oriented towards women, right? Um, But their own internal policies don't really uh, reflect that. And at the top of the organization, at the very top of these organizations, and I do spend quite a bit of time exploring those at the top, um, it's, it's really men with elite backgrounds. It's really men who come from banking or IT or education um, who have had long careers um, within major sectors, uh, you know, um, corporations within other parts of Indian industry, and they have really come to become the corporate face of of microfinance. And and I I have to note that this is a big transformation because when the microfinance movement, the NGO-based microfinance movement got going, there were a number of women in strategic positions. And as it became more profit-oriented, as it became more um, oriented towards, uh, I mean, not just profit, but really, I mean, profit in every sense, right? Really profit extraction. Um, As it became oriented towards investors uh, getting as much as possible, investor entry, exit. There are whole papers that are just written about how do investors enter and exit MFIs in India. It's like such a big topic. So once it starts being about that, um, the women are either pushed out or they exit. And you don't see uh, women in strategic roles as MFIs become more corporate. So, so, so those are the kinds of transformations that I'm, I'm looking, I, I, I look at in that chapter and, and the kinds of the, the climate within MFIs that I examine in order to question whether this is as, you know, uh, women-centric a space as it appears to be.
1: Right. So, you know, on the note of um, kind of the gender dynamic between uh, men in power and the corporatization of MFI and also their extractive relationship with uh, women who are, uh, you know, deemed, uh, as you said, you, they're deemed reliable because they're vulnerable. Um, in chapter three, you talk about the, the kind of the metrics of this, which is creditworthiness. And, um. Could you speak a little bit about how, you know, how Epidemify measures creditworthiness and like what the socio-cultural factors there are?
2: Yeah, so, so in a way I feel like this chapter is sort of the heart of the book because it addresses the, the thing which I think has been not sufficiently examined in the context of microfinance is that how is it that a group that has historically been thought of as uncreditworthy how do they suddenly become credit worthy and not only credit worthy, but become, you know, the darlings of, uh, you know, the whole Indian financial world, right. Such that, you know, there's people in internet, you know, there's these, these elite men who run these MFIs, they're going to, you know, global settings in the world bank and at the UN and talking about, you know, how amazing their women clients are. Like how does that happen for a group that's supposed to be high risk? Um, and I don't think that that, You know, we have too often relied on really essentialized understandings of women as being essentially good, essentially caring for their families uh, as as an explanation for why it is that, you know, these women pay back on time. And, uh, you know, as a feminist researcher, that's like not a very good explanation. Right. Like there are social factors, why it is that women Pay back on time. I mean, what during when the pandemic broke out, uh, I had finished most of my research, but I was going back and looking at a bunch of coverage about this. Um, but in the, I, I talk about this actually later in the book in conclusion. But you know, I, I I could I was I was amazed by how well MFIs did during the pandemic, and there were stories of uh, you know women who had when when all the money had dried up and everything had closed down. You know, women who would walk walked you know, 20 kilometers to pay back their loan on time. And everyone's saying, well, wow, it's so amazing, like how committed the women are, right? Like not a good sociological explanation for why they're paying back, right? It, it really relies on these taken for granted understandings about women being a certain way. Um, and so what I show is that there's a much more complicated story that, that the, the loan off, what MFIs have done so brilliantly is that they have forged relationships based on trust with women who live in vulnerable communities. And these are not the most vulnerable women. These are working class women who have lots of opportunities, who are able to choose which MFI they want want to borrow from, and who have some amount of resources. Uh, Those are the women who primarily take loans from these MFIs. And uh, the men and women who are out there on the streets trying to get women to borrow, um, they have to stand out from the others who are trying to get their attention. And so they establish uh, you know, re- long-term trusting relationships that then allow women to trust their organizations. And so this chapter examines what Viviana Zelizer calls relational work, right? How are those trusting relationships where Personal information is melded with uh, economic information, uh, where, you know, that feeling of trust not only comes from the fact that you know personal things about one another, but also because you know that you are relying on each other. And what I show in that uh, chapter is that it cuts both ways the loan officers need those women to take the loans and pay back on time for their own livelihoods just as much as those women need those loans from both from that person and they need to be approved and it's actually a, re- a relationship of interdependence that's quite personal so loan officers will gather very personal information about women and their communities about the exact circumstances of their livelihoods the restrictions they face and and there's a great amount of variation Within working class slums that we don't, as outsiders, often acknowledge. We just say, "Oh, they're all poor," or "They're all living in this working class slum." At least that's how uh, the financial system has has regarded it. That's how uh, you know global development paradigms regard. Uh, you know, uh, marginalized communities in urban India. But if you look within it, there's a lot of class diversity. There's a lot of livelihood diversity. Uh, there's a lot of different levels of economic stress. And uh, for MFIs to navigate the space, they have sent out individuals who share those backgrounds, who understand those communities, to go in there and gather very personal information about what individual women or others report it selectively back to the MFI, uh, and then all, allocate loans. Uh, with the understanding in a sense that both parties you know understand one another and and it's that personal so in what what I'd like i mean this addressable what I would like to pursue further from this is how it is that those very concrete personal relationships get converted into algorithms because because once once that creditworthiness is established right they it then turns into it gets fed into Um, You know, a database, a, 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 you know, a a record, a financial record. Right. And now these women have been recruited into the formal financial system. They have a credit history now. Right. Uh, That credit history is only going to tell you a very, very little bit about what they've gone through in terms of repaying those loans. But if the uh, loan officers and those who are interacting with them on the ground can help them produce a good credit record, it's good for the MFI and it's good for the women, too, because they can eventually take out larger loans, which is really what they want to be able to do, because they don't really have a lot of other options other than to take out high interest loans. Uh, in the absence of, uh, you know, access to medical care, access to education, access to housing, sanitation, et cetera, they have to get these things for themselves through these high interest loans, and these loan officers can provide it. So that's that's what's at stake when we're talking about creditworthiness. This is something that MFIs have cracked this nut in a way that government institutions have not. Have were not able to do so? Even when the post colonial state was rolling out, right, all of these, you know, rural. Uh, development initiatives and banking initiatives, right, they were not necessarily able to establish that person-to-person contact so that ordinary people, marginalized people with marginalized identities would trust those institutions in order to be able to be drawn in to those systems and take debt. But MFIs have done that. And I think we have to recognize that in order to be able to make any kind of transformative change uh, in the financial space. Uh, because that that's what they've cracked. So that creditworthiness piece is really um, really the thing that, it, and I, and I've done, I think quite a painted quite a complex picture about it, but I think it's something that there's a lot more research that can be done, uh, probing creditworthiness, relationality, and how that then feeds into algorithms. I don't have the economics or the math background to really probe financial algorithms within MFIs, but I think, that the connections between, uh, you know, what is being produced interpersonally, and then what actually gets um, encoded in financial systems and in financial information systems—that's, you know, I, I think that is a, a, an arena of um, power brokerage and 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 really uh, gendered subject making that we have really not looked at.
1: Yeah. So. Um... You know, there, there is a kind of, and I, I don't know, I might be misreading this, but there's a kind of verticality or like hierarchy in, uh, you know, in the very concept of uh, creditworthiness and the relational work done here. But then in, you know, chapter four, you you look at other kinds of rationalities, which are at least, you know, partially lateral, because these, these are like social work by women who organize around the financial ecosystem of the MFI. So... Could you elaborate a little bit on the categories of organizational labor that you study in and the women who are engaged in this labor?
2: Yeah. So so I the, that I think the three, the creditworthiness and then this, the social work part of it, they, they go hand in hand. Um, and 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 I put them I regard them as really central to to the argument as a whole. And you're right, uh, Sharonik, that the. A, you know, I talk, The whole book is set up around this idea of gendered extraction, which is very hierarchical, right? But then, what to actually understand how creditworthiness happens, you have to look at those lateral relationships, right? And and what I unpack in chapter four is that there, even when they appear lateral, there are hierarchies packed away in there, right? So so that chapter really focuses on powerful women volunteers who know their communities very well and who organize women into groups in order to connect them with microfinance institutions. So when those loan officers come into a community, if they don't know somebody who knows all the women in the neighborhood, there's really nothing much that they can do in order to draw women in. They they are not in a position to go door to door and say, hey, do you need a loan? Like we have this company, you heard of our company? Like, let's talk. They're not actually in a position to do that. When they go connect with neighborhoods, they need a key point person. Uh, that can provide them with information and can essentially construct a group. They don't have the know-how to do that. Um, And it's women within the neighborhood. And and in the examples that I show, it's mostly women who have a bit more resources than their uh, their peers. Um, But sometimes it's people who don't necessarily have more resources, but who are better connected who, uh, you know, who are involved in organizing, or they've been involved in self-help groups, or they've been involved in some other kind of community organizing trade unions, um, which are stronger in Tamil Nadu, some parts of rural Tamil Nadu. I met uh, women who were very powerful, who were quite impoverished, but were extremely well connected because of their uh, their embeddedness in other kinds of, um, you know, social organizations that were Far beyond the MFI, Um, and so so I'm what I what I argue in that chapter is that the work that these powerful women do in gathering together, basically encoding the varied financial statuses of women in the community, uh, and assembling them into a risk pool that MFIs can then use in order to offer these group loans, that that is the underpaid, unpaid labor that makes you know the construction of creditworthiness possible. So, uh, you know, so maybe this is easier, more easily explain an example. So in the book, I talk about uh, a woman that I call Sarojama who lives in uh, Bangalore in in, in uh, a slum that's just tucked behind a very wealthy neighborhood. And uh, she is an extraordinary woman. She's a construction worker who has, uh, you know, worked really um you know has had a very lucrative career in uh, in construction in carpentry specifically uh, not just in construction but has you know can, can 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 construct a couch, can uh, you know, do has like power tools in her closet and things like that. Um, but she also has this heart for her community and uh, you know, has been out there recruiting people, connecting them not just with MFIs, but with uh, you know, laptops for youth, uh, any kind of social program that's out there. MFIs are just one more that she tries to connect her community with, right? And she is very she knows about Okay, this woman has a lot of medical expenses. That woman has a rental that she has, gets income from, and her husband's a drunk. You know, this other woman uh, is pretty well off, so we definitely want her on board because we need someone who's definitely going to pay this other woman. Right. So they all within the community, they all have very different financial circumstances. And Sarojama understands what they are and is able to get them all together, provide that information to the MFI and then uh, be able to. Uh, you know, deliver the loan to all of them. That also means that when it comes time to pay, Sarojama has to go door to door, make sure that all of those women with those varying levels of vulnerability uh, have the money for repayment. And if they don't, then she needs to be able to be ready to either come up with the money herself or to be able to sit down and negotiate perhaps with other family members or other community members to come up with that payment so that the group will not default. So it's actually a very laborious, stressful role. And it's one that is unpaid. I mean, Sadojema doesn't get anything extra from the MFI for doing all of that. Right. And yet the MFIs cannot lend in groups that are compliant with the national regulations and uh, with the state regulations to supply loans to vulnerable people unless they have women like Sarah collecting that information and smoothing over all of those rough edges in order to make that 98, 99% repayment rate happen.
1: Right. So, um, in, you know, next you take up the Empowerment training, and you know, I you you say that, and training is kind of the obverse of the story, and you know the uh, and the ideolo- ideologies it promotes, such as that of working motherhood, and you've already talked about the stigmatization of motherhood within the MFI system. Um, so, you know, my first question is what? Two questions: What do the curricula of this training look like, and what can we infer from uh, either its acceptance or its refusal among the clients?
2: Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, training was what drew me into this whole space, right? I I was so fascinated. I thought, you know, if you look at what MFIs teach the women that they're lending to, well, then you can get a pretty good idea of what their ideologies are about what an ideal client should be like. So so that's really what what drew me in. And I studied a couple of different programs um, that look different on the outside. So one of them was about uh, self-management. It was about, uh, teaching clients to be entrepreneurial. Um, and it was, and, and it was called, you know, that I, most of them, the module was extremely long, but, uh, what I, saw was that they mostly just taught the first module, which was about self-management, and it was about knowing oneself. It was about this, it was really this kind of um, idea that if women could just know their own capacities, uh, then they would be able to be better mothers, be able to take better care of their families, and ultimately be more successful as people, uh, and that the problem was simply that they did not know themselves well enough. And that if you took this uh, module, then you would recognize your capacities uh, and then that would somehow lead to you becoming an entrepreneur um and these are glossy modules so one of the ones that i spent a lot of time looking at you know it was designed in latin america translated uh for and adapted culturally for the indian space uh it provided in the local language etc uh highly skilled trainers would come to deliver these trainings and what i found were a variety of responses that a lot of women were very excited that someone was taking the time to sit down and teach them all these things but when it came down to it this idea of well, who are you really? You know, a lot of women found it kind of hilarious or kind of useless to even engage in this kind of conversation. So, in the chapter, I talk about a variety of responses that women had—some very positive, uh, some very negative. Um, but whether they were positive or negative, it did not necessarily produce anything of that translated into improvement in their own lives. Um, very rarely and so and it's a complex thing I do my best in the chapter to not present uh, you know a bottom line well this is how women re- respond but rather to show that you know different women from different backgrounds depending on the kinds of opportunities that they've had in the past, what their own aspirations are for themselves in the future that 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 sort of Help determine or helped at least contextualize how they received these trainings. The other training that I look at uh, in parallel is one about financial inclusion, which has become a little sexier with funders than uh, entrepreneurship training. Um, but but they, it kind of comes down to a similar idea that you as the mother, you need to be able to uh, put together the resources that the community needs and you need to be able to manage uh, the financial resources for your whole family, and that this is part of what makes you a good mother, um, and that you need to be the one to do it. So although they're looking at slightly different topics, um, I argue that the message is very, very similar in terms of what mothers ought to be doing um, in order to to be good mothers within their families. Um, and And, you know, I think that many of the immediate Results of these trainings can be construed as positive again. Like I was talking about the affective part of it, you know, um, some of these trainings. If you go on the website, uh, I anonymize them in the book, and so I won't tell you the identities of them here. But if you actually go onto those companies' websites, you know, there's women laughing at the trainings. They're interacting with each other. You know, they're they're having a great time. Um, So there is some joy that comes out of these trainings as well. Um, But it is also the case that very often women just say, well, that was fun. Now I need to go and go back to construction or I need to go back to the fields or I need to go pick up my kid. Right. Um, It's not necessarily something that the content of the trainings uh, is not necessarily um, transforming or uh, not necessarily beneficial. Uh, It's not addressing the women's actual situated uh, interests um, within their context. And so So it's another one of these more lateral kinds of interactions. Part of my goal in looking at trainings um, or not necessarily my, wasn't necessarily my goal, uh, but what the findings show uh, really is that uh, MFIs are not all powerful. They are very they are they have to compete to uh, the women who are taking these loans are not dupes who are unif- unilaterally grateful and, uh, you know, just taken in by the system. They have to be convinced, too. And they don't necessarily, you know, accept or enjoy every idea that the MFA present MFIs present, um, that they are active subjects, too, who, you know, accept, resist uh, what in their own way. Um, and And they do it. Uh, you know, and this may be because of their vulnerability, this may be because of the culture, although I hate to use culture as an explanation, but they are very kind about it, right? It, it is seldom that women, at least in my view, and obviously I'm not a part of the community, so, you know, and I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be so audacious as to say that I were, but, you know, they, they, they are going to be nice about it, right? So, so the fact that they're nice to whoever comes to ask them from the outside in some ways covers up. Uh, the, the, what I see as really refusal or even resistance in many cases to these ideologies about how they ought to be. They have their own value systems, their own understandings of how they should conduct themselves and they are not really transformed or disturbed uh, by these trainings. And I think that's as it should be.
1: Mm, yeah. So, you know, you talked about this kind of dissonance or disjunction between the, what you call the situated interests of the women who are, you know, the clients of the MFI and the, you know the grammar and the content of these modules and then in in the final chapter you talk about another uh, dissonance which is between again the situated interests of these women and the development actors in the global north and what they deploy as and i quote decontextualized understanding of third, third world women's poverty so um you know could you speak a little m- uh, more on this
2: yeah. So so when I st- as I said, when I started out uh, this project, I was very interested in, you know, the way that microfinance was understood globally. And I started out with the understanding that this is really a global industry and in many ways it is. But my findings in the book suggest that a lot of the way that the rubber meets the road, so to speak, with regard to MFI um, uh, trading and loan deployment, loan recruitment, dispersal, etc., really have to do with Indian Policies within India and practices within India. However, there is a really important global element to all of this and I didn't want to ignore it in the book, even though it didn't fit neatly into the story as a whole. Because I think that development actors, and here in the chapter, I talk about folks who lend on Kiva.org. I talk about people who are working in international development institutions that fund MFIs uh, in India and in other places. And I talk about how those folks understand uh, women borrowers, right? And, And what I find is that they have a stubbornly uniform view of the borrowers. That that they really believe in this ideology that if you give them a loan, they will start a business and everything will be fine. That third world women who are experiencing poverty are the same everywhere in the world. That they, uh, you know, just need some entrepreneurial skills and some confidence, and that they too can pull themselves out of out of poverty. Uh, I talk about one woman who lends on Kiva.org, who says, you know, um, this woman has the same capacities as I do, and she just needs some help. So I want to give it to her, right? This idea of a shared understanding among women. And that, and what I show in the book is that in the organization that I worked with, even when presented with evidence that it's a more complicated story, that, uh, you know, these institutions actually shape a lot of the ways that, women receive these loans, that uh, entrepreneurship isn't a magic pill, that the loans might be used just to pay for a medical expense that they couldn't necessarily uh, do on their own, that the loans are a very small amount, whatever it might be. I mean, there's a zillion right uh, pieces of information that complicate this view uh, that folks who are outside, who are in wealthy countries, uh, they have a stubbornly... Um, Stubborn and intransigent view of third world women's poverty. They they think that they understand it by looking at a few pictures. And and I would have also say that those those understandings are, um, you know, it's easy to come to that conclusion. They are marketed that way. Uh, when you go and look at websites, when you go and look at Kiva.org, for example, um, you know, it shows a variety of cultures, but it constructs women's lives in very similar ways. Um, and, and so it's easier to walk away with a very simplified understanding. And, you know, and of course the women who are doing those lendings, women and men who are lending on Kiva or who are working at MFIs abroad, you know, they don't necessarily have the time, the bandwidth emotionally to try to figure out, okay, what are the specific situations that women are operating in? Am I doing a good thing or not? They just want to do the good work. And move on with their complicated lives, um, but it, the problem is that when you do that, then you are just perpetuating um, this kind of engine of narrative and funding uh, that that is really contributing to this financial exploitation. And um, and so I, I sort of invite. Um, you know, I invite readers to uh, slow down a little bit and um, to think about it. Ultimately, I don't come down on whether or not you should lend on Kiva.org. That's up to you. But, but just to understand that there is, um, you know, a much more complex uh, institutional picture that makes, you know, that 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 should necessarily um, puncture, not just splinter, but puncture our understanding of how uh, women in India and other countries are constructed as poor like India, how they actually live their lives and what's important to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like in some ways we have come full circle because we started with, uh, a scene of joy, belying something, you know, much, much darker. And we are ending with, um, this kind of excitement, optimism and triumphalism of, of, uh, these websites and you look at something that is, that is deeper, but, um, I can't in good conscience, let you go without asking you, um, my final, final question, what are you working on now and what is the next project that we can expect from you?
2: Yeah. So a couple of different projects are already, uh, underway and I'm kind of looking to the next one. So one thing which is coming out, um, which is forthcoming from Palgrave Macmillan is an edited volume that I've done with, uh, Gaudi Vijayakumar at Brandeis, whom you might be talking to her about her new book, uh, on, HIV, AIDS uh, in India. Um, so she, I, I would expect that her book would also show up uh, at New Books Network sometime soon. Um, and uh, so she and I are co-editing, have co-edited a volume called uh, Sociology of South Asia that uh, is sort of cutting edge new scholarship from um, on South Asia. We have uh, work on not just India but uh, um, Pakistan, uh, Nepal, Sri Lanka. Uh, so not a Whole, not all the countries in South Asia, but we try to make it as uh, not as India-centric as as it, it is by default. Um, and and we really think about how uh, empirical work on South Asia can move us towards decolonizing the discipline of sociology. There's been a lot of discussion within sociology about how we need to decolonize the discipline. Most of it has been very theoretical, really thinking about the canon and sociological theory. Um, and and what we argue in this volume is that when we simply center a different part of the world than the U.S. or Europe, um, you get you, you can move towards a very different paradigm of sociological thinking. And we obvi- offer a lot of context and a lot of examples about how that might be the case. So we really hope that that, that starts a new conversation within the discipline and beyond. And then uh, there's another book that I'm working on uh, with Chincia Solari uh, on, on gender in the neoliberal order, which is comparatively looking at um, South Asia, the former Soviet Union, and the United States, um, and looking at uh, how gender and neoliberal how how neoliberalism is underpinned uh, by a gender system that is located in the nuclear family and uh, subsidize the subsidized and cheapened labor of women alongside this idea of, uh, women's empowerment and women's entrepreneurship, uh, as really being really key to the neoliberal order. And so we are currently working on that right now. And then, um, I am cooking up my next empirical project. I've got a few ideas, but, uh, trying to get these, this, this book on neoliberalism out the door first.
1: Right. Um, actually, you know, um, uh, the NBN episode on, uh, got a visual commerce It's already out. It's, uh, yeah, it's on the website. If you're listening to this episode, uh, and uh, she was interviewed by the amazing Sneha Navarapu, it's it's already on the website. Um, so uh, yeah, and I'm so excited uh, for all your new projects. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading slowly all of them. <laughs> um, but uh, Smitha, thank you so much for talking to us about your book. This was wonderful, and you know, congratulations on this publication.
2: Thank you, Sharonik. It was a pleasure speaking
1: to you. And thank you, listeners. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope you have a great day. Thank you.